We're in week three of our series, Criticizing Jesus. Um, and if you're new, we're, we're not criticizing Jesus. We're looking at the criticism that Jesus faced in, in his day. Um, and by looking at these criticisms, a couple things happen. First of all, we get to see how his contemporaries viewed him, and, and that's important. Some of his contemporaries viewed him favorably, and a lot of them did not. He, he just surprised everybody. He shocked everybody. Nobody was ready for Jesus. They should have been ready, but they, they simply weren't. We're no different. <laughs> but the second thing that happens when we, we view his contemporaries and how they viewed him is we're given an opportunity to learn more about Jesus, his ministry, and his mission, uh, both by what they were criticizing Jesus for and then how he responded. We just learned so much about him, his ministry, and, and really how we should live and live our lives as, as the people of God. Now, you might have noticed a rough, kind of a rough pattern. It follows this generally, not exactly each week. Um, Jesus says or does something. The religious leaders criticize it, right? Jesus points out the folly of their criticism, their objection. He then explains the underlying faulty reasoning that led them to the objection. So it's always like a two-part answer. First, he answers their direct issue then he digs a little deeper and says, you're thinking this because you're probably thinking this. Let me, let me correct you. And so he digs a little bit deeper. And then, of course, the leaders refuse to see or to hear this new thing that God is doing. In the language of their faith, they had eyes, but they refused to see, and they had ears, but they refused to hear. And in Bible language, that, that's called disobedience, right? When you hear, when you got ears, but you don't hear. And it sounds kind of crazy, but in that Hebrew train of thought, you're disobeying. You're hearing, you're going. Pfft. To have eyes and ears, right? Eyes that see and ears that hear implies that you have eyes of faith and you've listened well and you've obeyed. Now, more often than not, the issue, the criticism that revolved around Jesus always kind of centered on the fact that Jesus was doing and saying things that only God was allowed to do or say, or that even could do or say, right? Jesus was doing them. Or, or he was saying and doing things that God would never do or say. He's doing and saying things that only an insane person or a demonic person or a God-hater would say. You, you've heard people talk like that. But the religious leaders... They refused to allow God to do or say something new. They refused to hear. And they refused to see that he was, in fact, doing something amazing, something new. But the religious leaders, very foolish, very dangerous thing to do. I'll just tell you right off start. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Don't be like the religious leaders. Now, recognizing this, I've posted this question a couple times. In a couple different ways. In our day and age, when habits so quickly become traditions and traditions become pillars of faith, it's worth asking some questions. Right? And we've been asking some questions. First week, we kind of asked along the lines of how, do you, how, how you view church, right? What's the right way to do church? And then last week, we viewed Jesus' identity, right? What did he say about himself? But before we move on to this week's criticism and the questions it poses for us, I want to change the wording here. I want to change it to as has always been. See, I fell into a trap there last week and, and the previous week that I used this phrase. And it's a nasty little trap when you use the words in our day and age. 
Like somehow in our day and age, right, it, it, it's different than any other day and age it's ever been. Well, that's just silly, right? We know that. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, or somehow, for the first time, our beliefs are being challenged. For the first time since Jesus was crucified, which is simply not true. Right? Biblical interpretation has been evolving and changing for 2,000 years. Right? We, get, we get so caught up in our generation of understanding that nothing before or everything before was exactly as we're thinking and everything after is heresy and, and evil, like somehow we arrived. It's not true. It's simply not true. Right? And again, somehow our day and age, we, we figured it all out. And so, as has always been the case... I'll say it that way. When habits so quickly become traditions and traditions become pillars of faith, it's worth asking, which spiritual or religious convictions do you feel are being challenged by society or even by some in the church? Right? Given the fact that times change and um, you know, in our, our day and age is not all that different, um, it's worth asking these kind of questions. And again, don't get me wrong, some things, they do need to be challenged by the church, absolutely. But we need to be careful. We need to be so, so very careful. Because we're going to learn in our passage this morning that Jesus was doing something new, and, and the religious leaders, they just shut their eyes to it. So in a similar way to the objection raised by the religious leaders of the day, and no, I'm not suggesting that you're the religious leaders of the day, there might be an underlying reason why we feel so threatened by some of the new ideas, maybe, some of the new things that we see churches doing. So again, it might be worth asking, how well do you know the source of your spiritual and religious convictions? Are they from your Sunday school days? I've talked to a lot of people, and the last information they got was in about the third grade. And can I just be real, real honest with you here? The lessons you got in Sunday school didn't tell you everything, right? There was a, there was a certain amount of age appropriateness. There's no young kids. You tell the story, you know, a lot of people drown. It, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible, but you don't bring that up in the Sunday school class. Or maybe your ideas are, are from that certain beloved pastor, right, that told you to read only the Bible and nothing else, and consequently, that beloved pastor, and I'm not bagging on that beloved pastor, but there are a lot of pastors that preach ideas and interpretations that have long since been tossed aside as wrong, as evil, right, as mean, Again, I'm not here to bag on preachers or, or anything like that. My point is that we've got to be open to what God is doing today, and we can't default always to what we grew up with because there's been amazing research being done in biblical studies, and we, we've kind of got to be open or we're going to be shut out. Again, in today's passage, the religious leaders, they make the mistake of clinging to their own knowledge, their own ways, the way they've always done it, rather than being open to what they see and hear Jesus doing. So I'm going to be in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 20, 35, excuse me, almost exclusively this morning. So if you open up, it'll be a good, this morning is one of those ones that'll be good if you visually see it. If you don't, we're going to have it up on the screen behind me. But it's one of those things that if you see all the verses together, it's going to be helpful. This is just one of those times. In verse 20, it starts out, then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered, and the better translations, and, and, and the Greek is really the crowd, and it's the same crowd. 
It's not simply a, a, a generic crowd. It's the same crowd. So I think the better reading, again, the crowd gathered. And that's so significant. We're going to find out. So he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Again, the crowd, you'll notice, is inside and near Jesus. Right? That, that is absolutely key. Inside and near Jesus. And the same crowd listened to this entire exchange between verses 20 and 35. And I say this because as you read through verses 20 through 35, you'll think, man, there's about five different messages going on here. They are not connected in any way, shape, or form. Like, like Mark is just bouncing all over the place. He's talking family. Then he starts talking about teachers of the law. And he starts talking about blasphemy. Then he starts talking about family again. And, and it just, you're, you, you, it's easy to think, well, these are five separate lessons. But really, see, Mark's got a, a, a way, a, a writing style, a, a, a way of writing um, that helps us understand, helps us interpret his particular writings. Um, and this is the same with the other gospel writers. Um, if you read the book of Matthew, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Matthew is, a, is an organizer. Right? You look through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, and you'll notice that Matthew took everything that Jesus taught and did on a topic, and he kind of puts it all into this chapter. And then he takes everything that Jesus taught and did on this other topic, and he puts it in this chapter, which makes it very hard to read the book of Matthew chronologically, right? Because it's not perfectly chronological, because Matthew is kind of organizing and moving stuff around. John, right? You read the book of John, try to read that one chronologically, because it's not going to work. It's not like any kind of biography that we have ever read, right? It's a, it's a philosophical treatise. It's, you know, seven testimonies and, and seven sayings, and it, it's not the story of Jesus. It's, it's the meat of Jesus' teachings. I mean, we could stick that label on John. And again, Mark's so different. Mark's got a pattern. He's got a pattern. Here's his pattern. Very simple. A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And here's the idea behind the pattern. That last A, when we get to it, is going to relate to that first A, but it's going to be a little bit different. And that last B there near the bottom is going to be related to, but a little bit different than that first B. Same with the C. And then D, Jesus is going to change everything, right? So we're going to have A, B, and C happen. Then Jesus is going to arrive on the scene, and the same thing, we're going to look at those same crowds, but they're all going to be different because of what? Jesus. Jesus changes everything. So this is the pattern, this is the pattern that Mark uses. Hit that next slide there, and this is the pattern that I'm going to be using today. Now, we all have these writing patterns, if you're, if you're kind of surprised. We, we all do this. When authors write something, they want you to understand what they wrote. So they will write in understandable patterns, right? Maybe you remember this in your English composition courses, right? You, you have, there's, there's a pattern. You do your introduction, you know, you got your three points, you got your conclusion. That, that's a pattern that helps your readers follow your thoughts. Uh, one that I always liked is, is tell them what you're going to say, tell them, and then tell them what you just said. I thought, that's a beautiful outline. That, that's, that's a pattern that helps my readers understand where I'm going. They don't get lost, you know. And so, and even the Hebrews, right, they have the parallelism. If you look at Hebrew poetry, Right? You can't separate that second line from the first line. They are connected, and they cannot be separated. One builds on the other in some fashion, but they're connected. That, that's, that's the way the Hebrews wrote, that's, and that helps us understand what they're saying. hope that all makes sense. So we've seen in verse 1, we've seen the crowd, right? Verse 1, or excuse me, verse 20. We've talked about the crowd. Now, with Mark, something you should know. Whenever he mentions the crowd, more often than not, the crowd hears Jesus, right? They hear, which means they obey, and they go from unclean to being clean, from unforgiven to forgiven, from demon-possessed to formally 
demon. They all change because they obey God. They hear and obey. And that's always versus those who reject, reject Jesus, right, that they don't, they don't hear. And in this case, the crowd loves Jesus so much, the disciples, they can't even, they can't even stop and eat. Because I mean, literally the crowd is coming in through the windows, the doors, they're just pressing in, you've got to heal my daughter, you've got to heal my mom, you've got to heal me. I mean, it's just, you did it for my friend, I saw it, and I believe it can happen to me. I mean, you can see, you can just feel the emotions of the crowd, right? Jesus is addressing their needs for the very first time in their entire lives. Religious authorities had never paid attention. They just shut them out and kicked them out. You're on the outside. You're unclean. Well, suddenly Jesus is gathering all these people who had been outside. He's gathering them around him, and he's loving them. He's, under, he's listening to them, and they're listening to him. And they're being transformed. They're being changed. Again, remember, the crowd is inside as opposed to being outside. Right? To be inside and near Jesus implies obedience to his teachings. Remember also, again, the crowd is usually composed of the sick, the healed, the unclean, the clean, sinners, tax collectors, all of them. This is a very diverse crowd. And then Mark introduces Jesus' to his family. You're like, wow, that was... So we move from the crowd, now we're going to go to the family. But again, it's not just to introduce the families. It's not like Mark's like, oh, I've got to introduce families. Jesus is family, right? I'm reading, I'm reading a biography, writing a biography, and I've got to introduce all the characters. That's not really what's going on, but it kind of is. He's introducing the family, but he's got a reason to introduce the family right at this point, right? Because he's got a pattern. When his family heard about this, they went out. And again, I kind of threw that in. That's in the best translations. To take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. They went out. The key being out or outside. Again, I'm going to keep hitting this. And hit there's some that who are inside near Jesus, and there's some that are outside away from Jesus. You don't want to be outside away. You want to be inside near Jesus. So everything that we're going to talk about this morning, just keep those two things in mind. You don't want to be outside in the cold. You want to be inside next to the fire, next to Jesus. And to take charge. That's kind of that. That's a funny phrase, right? You read it. It's very bland. It almost sounds like you're going to go take charge of a, a feeble person, like, you know, take their arm. Come on, honey. Walk Jesus somewhere. And that's really, that's not the case at all. In the original Greek, I love that phrase. In the original Greek, it, it, one commentator says it was sinister, right? He uses that word sinister. Um, the phrase really means to seize or to restrain with hostile intent. So mom isn't just coming, let's come on, crazy, crazy Jesus, right? The family sees Jesus is going against everything that the family believes, the family has always believed that all their family and friends believe Jesus is embarrassing the family. And you know what happens when you embarrass the family. People get upset, right? You don't want to embarrass the family. And then number three, the third thing to notice here in this passage right here, he's out of his mind. That's about as close to saying that he's demon-possessed as you can get. Just, just kind of keep that in mind. Which segues nicely into, you know, we got the A, the crowd, we got the B, the family, now C, the religious leaders. Boom. Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, like ominous, they came down from Jerusalem. He's possessed by Beelzebul. Now, a lot of yours will have Beelzebub, two different phrases, Lord of Flies, Prince of Demons. Fact of the matter is, Jesus doesn't even address that, so we're just going to lay that there for a second. Uh, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So first we have a family wanting to seize and restrain with hostile intent and implying that Jesus might be demon-possessed. 
Not good. Now we have the teachers of the law coming down from Jerusalem, right, to pass judgment on Jesus. Back in chapter 2, if you, if you go back verses 1 through 9, Jesus heals a crippled man. And again, the Pharisees step in and they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, right? Let me see what the, the passage. Yeah, I'll come to it. Some, oh, here it is. It says, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So that happened back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, when Jesus heals a crippled man. And so now, again, if he's demon-possessed, if he's, here's the kicker, if he's employing demons to drive out demons, that's blaspheming. You can't, you're not allowed to employ a demon, apparently. Didn't know that? Don't do that. Don't employ a demon, because that's blasphemy, right? So, now here's the crazy thing. These are religious officials. They've, they've arrived from on high, and they have a criteria of deciding which works, you know, that, that these people are doing, which are demonic works and which are godly works, because Jesus has been doing some pretty crazy works, right? And so they had this criteria. Guess what the criteria was? Jesus is not going to do well with their criteria. If it followed the law, then it was godly and you're good to go. If it didn't follow the law, if it disagreed with their interpretation of the law, well, then you're demonic, you're blaspheming, and it's the death penalty. Right? So this is what Jesus is facing as he's having this discussion. And now we get to Jesus. He responds to all this talk. So Jesus calls them over to him. Right? He's, he's, he's in command of the situation. He's so confident that he can command and call teachers of the law over to him. And to begin to speak to them in parables, he gives two parables, basically. How can Satan drive out Satan? And we read this earlier. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now, understand that as he is saying this, that all the hearers are hearing that, the, that Satan's got a kingdom and God's got a kingdom. And right here, Jesus is talking about Satan's kingdom, right? Y'all hearing that, right? If a house is divided, if the house of Satan is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has already come. Jesus is pointing out to the religious authorities that if they are correct, and Satan is sending demons to destroy other, other demons, then that kingdom is already defeated. It's just a matter of time before, you know, you march in and take over the land and put them all in jail. It's just a matter of time. The war is over, right? The war is over. But like retreating, retreating defeated armies, Satan's kingdom is allowed to continue to oppose God's kingdom. Lots of theology involved in that. We'll, one day we'll tackle that, but that's kind of the case. Until it's final and complete defeat when we get to the book of Revelation. And to make that perfectly clear, here's the second parable. In fact, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What he's saying is that Satan's kingdom is crumbling, but not by internal division. That's not what's going on. Jesus has already shown that. Basically, Jesus is saying the only reason I'm able to do what I'm doing is because I'm the strong man, and I have already bound Satan, and I'm currently plundering his house. That's how I'm doing all the things I'm doing. Satan's already defeated. He's already come to an end. He's done. Now, we're going to move back through the outline, right? We've had the crowd, the family, the teachers, and then Jesus. 
Now we're going to back out. We're going to back out through the same way we came back in. We're going to revisit the leaders of the law, teachers of the law. Then we're going to hit the, the family, and then we're going to go back out to the crowd. And it's all going to be a little bit different because of Jesus. Right? First, the teachers of the law. It says this, verse 28 through 30. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this, this is important, because they were saying that he has an impure spirit. Now, remember back in verse 22, Jesus was, according to the teachers, the religious leaders, he was blaspheming by employing demons to cast out demons, right? We can't do that. And again, in the previous chapter, he had been accused of blaspheming. Essentially, Jesus is reversing the charge here. Right at the beginning, they're charging him with blasphemy. Now he's charging them with blasphemy. He's basically saying, if you call the source of the things I do demonic, if you call the source of the things I do Satan, then you're calling God Satan. You're calling God demonic. Don't do that. That's dangerous. Not what you want to be caught doing. And then, back in, back, then we're going to go back to Jesus' family, right? We're, we're backing back out. And again, you'll notice the family is... is is still outside. And the way Mark puts it, he's going to like emphasize that just a little bit more. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. Catch that. They sent someone else in to call him. The crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Now notice that Jesus' family is basically trying to call Jesus away from his mission and his ministry. Not unlike Peter, Right? Refusing to let Jesus be who Jesus needed to be and do what Jesus needed to do. Like, get behind me, Satan. You know, we take that like, wow, that was mean. But he's just being forceful, right? Right? Peter and, and mom and dad and, and the family, they're all trying to pull Jesus away from what he knows he has to do. And so his language gets a little rough, just a little bit rough. It was just all... Too embarrassing for the family. And don't think that Jesus didn't notice this. Right? His family wanted him to return home with them. It's a radical reversal to what you recall he asked of his first disciples. What did he ask? That they leave their families, leave their mom and dad. And now his family's trying to take him back. So Jesus responds, Who are my mother? And my brothers, he asked. Then he looked around those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. I love that. And mother. His response is shocking. Blood kinship isn't the greatest and highest relationship. This was unheard of in the Israeli tribes, right? Your family was everything. You were organized by tribe, by clan, by, I mean, everything. Your family sins, you get in trouble, right? You're that intimately connected with the group. There's a new social order, though. Oh, and by the way, intellectual acumen isn't the greatest, highest achievement either, which is what the religious authorities thought. The greatest and highest achievement is, is obedience to God. So you got to understand, Jesus is gathering around him an incredibly ragtag group of people, right? The 12 disciples, think about that, a tax collector, collaborator with the Roman government along with a zealot who made it a habit of killing people like tax collectors. Right now, they're sitting next to each other. That's only because of Jesus. 
Right? Their whole previous life changed when Jesus arrives in part D. Everything changes after Jesus arrives. He's got the 12, he's got the crowds, right? The cleansed, the healed, the forgiven, formerly demonized, tax collectors, sinners, the whole nine yards. And he's transforming them into a holy community, right? The restored kingdom of priests and a holy nation that includes women. Again, reminiscent of those that God first called, right? A, a nation of slaves. So it starts with a nation of slaves, and now he's moved on to just this incredibly ragtag group of people that everyone else stay outside, eat at the kids' table, not at the adult table, right? That's the way they've been treated their whole lives. And their core characteristic is doing God's will. And because of this, and this is kind of our concluding thoughts that we kind of need to just kind of sit on for a little bit, those who ought to have known, the religious leaders and those closest to Jesus, his family, they began as insiders, but they end up as outsiders because they refused to see or hear that God was doing something new. And those who were always on the outside, the unclean, marginalized, demonized, tax collectors and sinners, they've been brought inside only because they've been obedient, not because they're special, super smart, blood kin, nothing, none of those things, simply because they were obedient. They listened, they saw, they heard, and they responded well. They're the circle of restored people who understand both Jesus and his mission, which is basically to do the will of God. Right? If Jesus is doing the will of the Father as the obedient Son, then his fathers will also do the will of the Father by following Jesus. So the debate with the family and the religious leaders from Jerusalem about the source of Jesus' ministry and the ministry, whether it was from God or from another source, decisively answered by Jesus, right? My source is God. And if you dare claim that my source is the devil, you are court and disaster. Like, my Father in heaven is going to have a word with you, and it's not going to be enjoyable. Um, Jesus does nothing that he doesn't see or hear the Father doing. He personally knows the source of all that he says and does. But my question this morning for us is, do we know the source of, of our convictions do we know why we're so upset when something happens in the church world and we feel threatened? Again, it's worth asking, do you know the source of your spiritual convictions? Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone's source has been Satan, right? So don't, don't misread my application here. Not what I'm saying at all, but I am suggesting that lots of what people believe is not biblical. It's just not biblical, right? It's the product of Hollywood, crazy tales from the imagination of artists from the Middle Ages, Friends and family that don't really read or study their Bible, but they've got strong opinions about who and what God should be. I had a good friend when I was a middle school teacher. She was a genius, never failed to remind me. Um, and I asked, I had a conversation about Jesus one day, and she proceeded to describe her Jesus. And, I, and, and when she was done, I, I said, where did you get that portrait? Well, that's just the way I think he should be. And I thought, well, that's, I didn't, I didn't want to get in a fight. I was, that's really not your option. <laughs> he presented who he was. You can't go back and change that just because you don't think it's right. That, that's, we're never given that option. We accept Jesus for who he is, what he said, and what he did. I read somewhere that when we do that, 
when we try to create a God as we think he should be, you'll notice that that, that God hates all the same people you hate. <laughs> That's not good. I could be wrong on this, but it seems to me when I talk with y'all, you can tell me afterwards if I'm wrong, many Christians claim to know their Bibles fairly well. But when it comes to church history and the history of biblical interpretation, nearly everybody admits, I know nothing. Again, talk to me afterwards. I apologize if I've slammed you. But that, that's just from what I've gathered as, as, I, as I chat with people, you know, so we've got this idea that all of our doctrines, all of our convictions were set the Monday after Easter, right? And haven't changed since. That's just not the case. That's just not the case. So here's why these questions are so important. And there's been groundbreaking research being done right now in our theology departments, in our seminaries. And they're not matching up with what a lot of us were told when we were young. Now, you have some options. You can accept this new, re and again, incredible research being done, books being written by our own theologians and Bible scholars in the Nazarene church. When we insist on the old ways and the old ideas, when we insist that they're necessarily the better ways, and any new ways or new ideas are simply wrong on the face of it, right, we're refusing to use new wineskins for the new wine. And we're insisting that anything new seamlessly fit in with or at best coexist with any currently held positions, spiritual positions, interpretations, ways or ideas. And I just want to suggest to you this morning the possibility, and you need to go discover this possibility. This isn't for me to say to you. This is something that you need to check out. I want you to consider the possibility that some of our religious and our spiritual convictions are really the product of the Protestant Reformation, right? If you follow that argument, both sides, they got so heated that instead of using common sense, they both kind of just doubled down, doubled down, doubled down, and they arrived at doctrines and theologies that are simply not biblical, right? They're the product of a crazy disagreement and an argument, but that's what got taught, Consider the possibility that maybe some of these theological doctrinal issues that are bugging you are not actually newfangled ideas at all, but they're simply being rediscovered. Fact of the matter is, entire sanctification, which is a, is a key doctrine for the church of Nazarene, we've always been accused, well, where'd you come up with that one? Did John Wesley pull that one out of his hip pocket? No. That's been around since the very beginning, and the, the Reformation kind of killed it. John Wesley brought it back. So many of the things that we think are new theologies and new doctrines, in fact, they are not new. It's simply the Reformation. They haven't, you haven't seen them in about 500 years because of a lot of different reasons. But as you go back into the early church fathers, you find out some of these new ideas, they're not new at all. Here's my point in all this. Final question. I'm going to ask it once more. Which spiritual... Religious convictions do you feel are being challenged by society or even by some in the church? First of all, understand that good Christians stand on opposite sides of either, every one of the issues that are bugging you. I can almost guarantee that if you have a strong opinion about something, you are going to run into a Christian who has the exact opposite opinion. And the tendency is to not only dispute the ones that go against your theological, your doctrinal grain, but to demonize 
right? We all do this. We demonize the idea or we demonize the person. That's what happened in Scripture this morning. Not a good idea, right? You're going to get caught on the wrong side of what God's doing. You start playing that game. We start demonizing the opposing person by bringing into question whether they have even a moral compass or any spiritual moorings at all, right? Or a church gets really big, I love this, oh, they've sold out, right? They've dumbed down the message. Closing thought, God's always doing something new. He's doing something new in your life. He's doing something new in what we understand about him because if we assume that we got it all figured out, we're in trouble. God is infinite. We're finite. Don't ever think the finite can figure out entirely the infinite. That, that's just silly. It's just silly. Don't get caught up in what you think you know so that you miss out on seeing what God is doing brand new. And he is. He's doing brand new things. I want to close err on the side of grace. When these new ideas come in, when Pastor Jerry gets up and says something, you're like, what? Give me grace. <laughs> Give me some grace. Go home, dig into it. Give me a call and have, and have a really nice conversation with me. Would you all bow your heads? Father, you're always doing something amazing. You're always doing something new. Father, we... we we don't deal with new very well. You know that. Our first tendency is to say no. But Father, that just is not a good strategy when it comes to your mission and the mission of your son. Father, give us tender hearts. Give us eyes that can see what you're doing. Even when we have something in the back of our heads that says, I'm not used to this, and I don't know if I like this. Father, give us eyes to see what you see. Give us ears to hear what you hear. And then, Father, give us courage to go out and do something about it. Because to simply do no harm is a losing strategy. Father, you have called us to go out and do good, to beat back the darkness we can't be neutral in order to do that. So, Father, give us courage. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit and in everything we do. Fill us every day with power and knowledge and the mission. Thank you for all this, Father. Thank you for your Son. In his name we pray.